This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, it is now widely accepted that Black Americans are owed a debt for hundreds of years of slavery and racial oppression. But can reparations be a distraction from the work of Black liberation that needs to be done? And... How do you defund the police in a city like Baltimore, unless you can also assure the black community that other ways can be found to deal with violence and crime? But first, President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet is taking shape, comprised mainly of corporate and imperial political operatives. Rebecca Ann Wilcox is a community organizer and Ph.D. candidate at the Princeton Theological Seminary with a special focus on race, gender, and class analysis. Wilcox believes that corporate Democrats are, in some ways, more dangerous than overt white supremacists. I think that the rise of neoliberalism, if it does nothing, it should show us that its impact right now is winning far beyond anything that conservatives could possibly accomplish. And it's winning particularly because of its tactic for racial uplift. And there's something about this narrative in racial uplift that is very seducing to civil society as it's able to uphold the aspirations, of course, of people who desire to be liberated. But it's also able to stabilize the state through this, like, falsified obscurity notion of progress that's very interesting because what it does is in some way redeem state violence through black bodies and I'm actually I have a piece coming out about this soon when I'm kind of theorizing about Kamala Harris's representation as an HBCU grad as a proponent of the Democratic Party as one of my sorority members Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and I'm just thinking about how these celebrations of her as the first Black woman to be the Vice President of the United States of America obscures the fact that she will helm the genocidal wars in the Middle East and also helm the wars that she's already started with Black incarcerated children. And imperialism seems to take a backseat to the ways that Black people can actualize state power because Black people have no power. And so I think that that is a very interesting ruse of neoliberalism to use racial uplift as a way to obscure the violence of the state. Yes, and of course there's a question about whether black faces in high places is really racial uplift. Kamala Harris liked to be called the top cop in California when she was attorney general. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because I think that in the conversation of racial uplift, I think if we situate it historically and what in the the work that W.E.B. Du Bois was was seeking to do, 
I want to say that the boys was engaged in a different project. And although we know he eventually recants his position with the Talented Tens, I think that what's happening with this racial uplifting, particularly from Black liberals, what's at stake for them is this possibility of of citizenship, right? This this possibility of what can be redeemed from America because of the labor that was put into this country or because of the significance and the relationality between the ancestors and where we are today. It, it, it's very much so rooted in this myth of progress. And I think what is at stake for the narrative of racial uplift is ideology, right? And I take, I'm thinking about Barbara Field's work, but I, I take ideology very seriously because it materializes, right? So ideology is not just some sort of objectivity, but it is the thing in which beliefs and systems are able to actualize and imagine itself to be real. It's world making, right? Ideology is world making. And I think that what's at stake in the ideology of racial uplift, particularly for Black subjects, is the refusal to believe that one is still a subjugated person or that one is still very much so a part of the Manichaean society and erring on the side of the slave. So saying all that to gently say that Black people's positionality in this contemporary moment is analogous, if not exactly the same as the subjugated position of a slave. And that reality to accept that is jarring and it doesn't give attention or credence as they would say, as neoliberals would suggest, to the work that has been put in to redeem people out of the institution of slavery. But the reality of the situation, for me at least, is that racial uplift cannot account for state violence through these narratives of redemption. It cannot in any way account for the fact that disproportionately Black queer trans folk are still dying at the hands of state violence. It can't account for the fact that disproportionately America still occupies the largest incarcerated bodies within the penal system, and these people are disproportionately Black. So I get what's at stake for the narrative and not wanting to diminish the work of people who have resisted, but I think what has to be problematized, particularly within the violence of neoliberalism, is how much of our resistance can actually be accounted to progress. Because I think resistance is a default position, right? It is is a natural response to oppression. But I don't know that resistance is this agency and power that the neoliberal narrative wants to uphold of escape and freedom. I don't know that resistance and freedom are interchangeable terms. 20 million people marched under the banner of Black Lives Matter and demanding racial justice just this past June. In most of the cities in which the Black Lives Matter movement has mounted racial justice offensives, Democrats are in control. Democrats are the ones who are at least nominally the bosses of the cops. And therefore, shouldn't Democrats be especially implicated in and need to be held accountable for what this mass incarceration state is doing to Black folks? Absolutely. Many of us on the left of the radical left, we in some ways are very anti-democratic party, of course. And what we were trying to get at, particularly in the 2020 U.S. presidential election, 
was that the Democratic Party is fighting for, is not necessarily just fighting for the center, but the Democratic Party is fighting for the center right, right? And that's a very interesting way to frame it, at least for people that are not familiar with the paradigms or the political language of liberalism, neoliberalism, conservatism, neoconservatism, radicalism, and then revolutionary, right? Um, And I think that those terms are best broken down in Joy James's article, Radicalizing Feminism. She kind of parses out what is at stake for each political movement. And I think that when we talk about the Democratic Party, we have to talk about the way that the Democratic Party is very much so aligned with the center right. And Obama says this, he says something along the lines that if you know, I really had to evaluate my party, my politics, it would it would be more so of a center-right. People would frame it as a center-right politic. But the issue is that because this tactic of racial uplift, right, because conservatives cannot win over the narrative of racial uplift, and because many of the leaders that are a part of these Black political movements, such as John Lewis and all of these other people, have presumed positions of power within the state, it seems as if the Democratic Party has some type of progressive agenda. And one of the things I write in a piece that I have coming out is that Joe Biden is successful in wielding an anti-Black agenda, right? So Joe Biden successfully wins a campaign by stating that he will not defund the police, right? By taking a pro-Israel stance, by suggesting that he is not for the Green New Deal, all policies that a refusal to support decimates poor Black communities. He successfully is able to win over this narrative through a patriotic position that includes Black people into this patriotism. And I almost liken that to what we saw in South Africa during the apartheid when Nelson Mandela becomes gets elected as the president and we see that the military that was built by the revolutionary at the time, the MK insurgency, we see them have a celebration to give over their badges, right? And Mandela thanks them for their service. And now this militant group that was used to resist the apartheid regime is now incorporated into South Africa's government, South Africa's military, and South Africa's intelligence agency. And the goal of this particular group that was formerly known as MK is now to stabilize the radical left, right? Because now we're a part of the government. We've overcome apartheid. So now our job is to stabilize the radical left while the job of the apartheid regime that's still the operating government job is to stabilize the right. And so it seems as if that they both have this center that in some way unites the country and is for, you know, this unity. But what's really at stake is the destabilization of Black insurgency against repressive and oppressive empires. And I think that that is what we see happening with the Democratic Party, is that it is posturing as a way to destabilize the radical left, right? But also as a way to posture toward the right and and promote this falsity of unity that can in some way potentially mitigate the aims and the concerns of these two opposing sides without understanding that what's at stake for these two opposing sides is anti-Blackness, that the right needs anti-Blackness to stabilize itself. And on the left, it's fighting against anti-Blackness. And there's no way to mitigate 
a world that is predicated upon anti-blackness. There's no mutual ground there. You've studied in South Africa at the University of Cape Town. As many as 8 million Congolese have died over the past 20 years or so in the Congo, a genocide in which the United States is deeply implicated. But that genocide, the death of 8 million people in Congo, is almost unknown in the United States, and it's been virtually ignored by the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah, because the Congressional Black Caucus has no power. Like, it's so interesting because there's this pipeline within HBCUs because HBCUs are branded as this incubator for the possibility of Black minds, right? And it's so interesting because there's this direct pipeline between some of the top HBCUs coming out of the Atlanta University Center as well as Howard, Hampton, Tuskegee, all of these places, right? And straight into the Congressional Black Caucus, right? Like you see all of these students wanting to intern with their favorite Black congressmen or women. And I think what is at stake in my anti-imperialist politic is really having to interrogate Black people's investment in imperialism, right? Because I understand that when you are powerless, what does it mean to have proximity to state power as a way to protect oneself from the violence that is experienced in the homeland, right? Like what, and Joy James does this work, particularly in her book, Warfare in the American Homeland. It's an anthology to talk about these imperialist penal pipelines, right? And what they're trying to do is funnel people into state power as a way to authorize some type of progression while what's at stake is really these genocidal wars happening nationally and globally. And I think imperial violence is obscured because people really don't, what do you do about that? And it's trapped in this entanglement between my abortion rights, my reproductive rights, the Supreme Court justice, right? If I don't in some way at least invest in policy of the state or believing that like some type of transformation within this political and by political, I'm particularly talking about the electoral politics system because political and electoral politics are not interchangeable. But within this particular political system that authorized a certain type of undoing of policy, how can Black voices or Black faces have some say in that as a way to what neoliberals say by time? And I think what is at stake in that narrative is a way to erase and obscure the ways that people live beyond the state, right? The way that people who are insurgents completely disavow their relationship to the state, go underground, and do live lives of fugitivity. And in those lives of fugitivity are creating worlds where it is possible, and they are showing us that it is possible to destate our lives. And one of the ways I'm thinking about that is if you look at communities in the hood or something like that, like there are people living without social security numbers. Right. Like they have no tracing of their actual beingness in this world. And there are people who go down the street to so and so to get unauthorized or what would be considered, quote unquote, illegal abortions because they already don't have health care. They already don't have access to the reproductive rights of this institution. And so the haunt, this neoliberal upholdance of Congressional Black Caucus and these Black politicians that want us to believe that policy within the state is our only hope, 
what haunts them is that these underground communities exist and they're dying and they're not dying. They're stabilizing themselves and they're becoming destabilized by the state. And they're becoming destabilized by the state because of the fact that they are actually living beyond the state. And it is supposed to be in the hegemony of the state is supposed to prove that it is impossible for us to destate our lives. But every day we see people who the state disposes of that create worlds that fundamentally require a relinquishing of the state in and of itself. And that haunts the hegemonic structures of the world and the powers that be because not having an investment in this like genocidal warfare that the state has waged on black people and still being able to survive and have communities of mutual aid makes this entire imperial project incoherent. And I don't know that the Congressional Black Caucus has the range to deal with that, right? I don't know that they particularly the state of them right now who are are so fixated on the civil rights movement. I don't know that they even really know what's at stake for global solidarity and international solidarity building, right? I don't know that they care about the Congo and the Middle East and Palestine and South Africa. I don't know that they feel inclined to challenge or even learn what is at stake overseas because I think that When you do that, you fundamentally have to interrogate your position as state power within America. And then you have to answer ethical questions that people on the ground are posing. Like, are you contributing to American imperialism? And the answer is always going to be yes for them. And I don't think that they want to reckon with that. And so they limit their politics to one of representation. For example, in the second half of the Obama administration, when Susan Rice was named as a potential Secretary of State, all of the Congressional Black Caucus rallied around her. And there was no discussion of her involvement as a key operative in the bombing of Libya destabilization of the whole northern tier of Africa that followed, or of the death of millions in Congo. Not a peep from the caucus. Of course not. Because the thing, the thing about it is that when we do this institutional and structural critique, we deem all of them complicit, right? So like, we know that to the extent that individuals are the faces of these violences, it's an army of them that actualize this collectively. And something you said about representational politics just really just made me think of George, I think it's George Lipset's article in Futures of Black Radicalism, where they pose the question of, what is this Black in the Black radical tradition, right? Like, what is this Black? And I think that I'm really interested in this term people are making toward Afro-pessimism because it illuminates Black as a subjugated position, particularly inextricably linked to being a host for these parasites and the parasites being whiteness, white supremacy, imperialism, all of the things that can actualize itself at the expense of Black life, right? All the things that can believe that their redemption is possible, even within the coalitions, right? Even within coalition, rainbow coalitions, buildings, and all of those things. Like, they can actualize itself because the Black exists. And so what's at stake for the Black is not just shared identity and really seeing that that gender and identity in and of itself are functions of anti-Blackness, right? And so thinking about non-binary worlds that are just calling for an ungendering of life itself, right? An ungendering of the binary, an undoing of the binary. I'm thinking about how Black is political, 
community is political. Solidarity is political. It is not just solely reduced to one's ability to share phenotype, but it has a lot more to do with shared struggle and my liberation being bound up with yours. And I don't mean that in the coalition sense where the proletariat or the worker realizes that they need the slave in order to build momentum for the movement, right? Because I think that there's a difference between the proletariat and the slave. But I think that when we're just talking about the slave, we're talking about the incoherency of Blackness. Blackness is not coherent. It is not monolithic. It does not have, as T. Troutman states in their work, a map, right? It can't be located. There's no coherent algorithm for how we get to what it means to be Black. And so how we foster and build communities has to be political. And then from that stance, we have to then realize that the Congressional Black Caucus is not in political solidarity with the ground. That is what it is. The Congressional Black Caucus cannot, for its own stability, cannot be in political solidarity with the streets because the Congressional Black Caucus would have to cease to exist. And they want to believe that there is power in the state. And we know that there's power in the state, but the power in the state is through militarism, imperialism, and state violence, right? And so it is the power to wield that violence. And they know disproportionately the bills that they are passing is for the upper middle class Black elite. It has absolutely nothing to do with the poor, which is why we are in a pandemic and people who live in the ruins of the ruins can't tell the difference between before and after. Life has not changed. Life has not shifted. If you go to poor communities, I'm particularly thinking about where I grew up in the Bronx, New York, in Yonkers, like, there has been three candle lights in one month on the same block, and it's not from the pandemic. It's just life. Like, niggas die every day, you know? And so death becomes the disposition of people living in the ruins. And so this hysteria around death in a pandemic is a little bit shocking for people who are already dying. It's just like, oh, welcome. Welcome to the world we navigate. We've been dying. And we know every four years we are still going to die. So I think that the question that I'm really interested in that Afro-pessimism poses for me is like, this radical embrace of death that is not a sense of martyrdom, but it's a realization that there are a whole lot of people that are already dead, like literally already living in the ruins. And when we look to incarcerated folks and we really see how this, this project of social death plays out and how the penal system and, and genocide fosters through particularly poor Black communities. It's just shocking that the Congressional Black Caucus can uphold any narrative of the possibility of state power for Black people. That was Rebecca Ann Wilcox, speaking from Princeton Theological Seminary. Zuri Armin Kent Smith is a poet, writer, and activist with a degree in Africana Studies and Philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. Kent Smith has a particular interest in the question of reparations for Black Americans. In the early stages of the Democratic presidential primaries, a number of candidates endorsed the principle of Black reparations. But does that mean the issue has become mainstreamed? I don't think that we've reached that point completely yet. And I say that just because I'm thinking about similar 
policy proposals that are explicitly very black in their nature, like the call for abolition or even defund the police, and the way that those are just now becoming kind of mainstream ideas where Biden is mentioning it, but is actually saying that he's not going to defund the police and is actually going to increase funding for the police. And so I think that reparations hasn't reached that point where there's even really a discussion amongst white politicians. But even when it does, I don't foresee that it will be a productive conversation to be had just based off of the history of what's going on right now. Yes, I haven't heard a public political conversation that delves into what is a reparations demand and what is just par for the course in politics. In other words, for example, a Marshall Plan for the cities, which used to be an every four years demand from mainstream black organizations. You don't hear it anymore, but a Marshall Plan for the cities, is, is that reparations? Could you speak more about that? I've never heard of a Marshall Plan. Well, until Barack Obama ran in 2008, every four years, a number of black organizations like the Urban League and others, I refer to them as mainstream organizations, would raise the demand for a Marshall Plan for the cities. That is, the United States should allocate many billions of dollars to reinvigorating and rebuilding America's cities like the U.S. did in terms of Germany after World War II. That was the Marshall Plan. So I think for me, when we think about reparations, I think we need to think about explicitly what are we trying to repair? And so for me, when I think of reparations, I think when many people think reparations, we're thinking about slavery and the afterlives of slavery that we see today. So I'm thinking about the way that slavery completely cuts off any ties to a distinctly black political formation or the elimination of any type of agency for black people politically. And so when I hear plans like the Marshall Plan or even thinking about LBJ's speech at Howard that I recently read, these plans don't really address any of that because they're not actually giving any type of agency, any type of power to black people. And instead, it feels like another way of being at the whim of what the United States wants to do to the black population that they have. So for me, I don't see something like the Marshall Plan or anything really related to just like the giving of money to really be reparations, because as quote unquote U.S. citizens, we should already be receiving things that improve our circumstances in the United States, which obviously doesn't happen because of our tenuous relationship with citizenship. But things like the Marshall Plan should already be happening. So if we're talking about reparations in terms of power and agency over these resources, then we certainly should be looking to black folks to be organizing to define what those needs are, what reparations means to us. But we haven't had a truly national conference of black people over reparations. Yeah, I think. For me, something that I've been thinking about a lot right now is the way that electoral politics seems to divert our attention away from having conversations explicitly for and amongst Black people about what exactly we want to see put forward as policy or put forward as any type of demand. And this summer, talking to some of my friends and talking to some of my colleagues, there's a certain way that as soon as we start to get down a certain line of thinking where we're really thinking about the extent to which 
we are subjugated and oppressed in the United States, immediately it comes back to, okay, but you're going to vote for Joe Biden, right? And it's like, why is there that constant reassurance that I'm going to do the quote-unquote right thing by casting my vote for someone who, in word and in deed, is very anti-Black? So how would you envision that Black activists integrate reparations in the course of their activist work? So for me, I think that I don't want to speak for activists. I don't do any organizing right now myself. I have in the past, but none right now. So I don't want to speak too much for what people on the ground should be doing. But I would think that it really just comes down to when you are organizing and when you are trying to build political momentum or build a political project, really just making sure that it's grounded in meeting the needs of the people in the communities that we're talking about. So forming these networks of communities that then can come together to talk about the formation of some type of platform, but really emphasizing that this work needs to be done on the local level, because that's when we really find out the extent to which the depth of the problem that we're facing. I'm always like continuing to think about right now as I'm like pursuing my PhD, like this is a question that's constantly on my mind is how do we translate this stuff into on the ground work? But you were speaking of reparations as being inseparable from questions of power. And seen that way, we should be speaking about more than just how big is the bill, how many trillions of dollars owed, how black folks should wield power over the investment and allocation of those resources. Yes. So for me, when I'm thinking about Black Lives Matter right now, what Black Lives Matter has kind of become throughout the years, I'm thinking about the ways that right now it seems to be that Black Lives Matter is an attempt to gain entrance into the United States as a project without attempting to change the character of the United States. So without attempting to change the way that it functions and the way that it organizes. So I, I, I agree that in any type of movement that emerges right now, there has to be an attempt to actually change the very nature that the United States runs in order to build agency for Black community. I mean, that's really Black power. That's straight from Torre. I agree in that sense. Some folks say that no amount of money can atone for the crimes that have been committed against Black people in the United States and, and worldwide. What's your position on a check, a monetary compensation? So I'm of the mind that there really is no amount of money that fixes or atones for the atrocities of slavery. Because, again, when we're thinking about what did slavery do, like it fundamentally changed the course of a whole people where, you know, there's lost histories, there's lost futures, there's lost past. There's so many things that have been lost that can't be quantified in terms of a dollar amount. And I frankly find it kind of disrespectful that a dollar amount is even being that someone thinks that they can give me a dollar amount. And then that means that I can no longer talk about the atrocities of slavery anymore because it's supposedly been atoned for. So yeah, I I don't think that there really is any amount of money that will actually make me feel better about slavery or about, you know, the afterlife of slavery that we're still seeing. But I think that if we are going to be talking about reparations, then it needs to be in some way that is addressing the constant ongoing afterlives of slavery in the form of like the prison industrial complex, in the form of environmental injustice. Yeah. Well, clearly a debt is owed not just to black Americans, but to 
folks who have been subjected to colonialism and slavery mm -hmm. all over the world, mm -hmm. the whole continent mm -hmm. of Africa, but also many of the peoples of Latin America and of Asia. Mm -hmm. So when we speak of an historical debt, there's lots of people that are owed. How do we deal with others who have been harmed by much the same people that we or some of us want to hand a bill to? It's a difficult conversation to navigate, but I think ultimately I'm not opposed to other groups receiving any type of reparations because ultimately it's the same hand that's crushing all of us. But I think that there have been other groups that have received for Japanese internment camps, for indigenous people have received reparations in some form for the atrocities committed against their communities. Black people haven't received that really in any form at all globally and especially not in the U.S. So I think that if we're going to engage in this coalition of trying to receive some type of reparations, we need to make sure that we are thinking about really thinking about the centrality of anti-Blackness and the centrality of slavery to the formation of the new world. And there's a particular reason why the United States doesn't give reparations to or doesn't even consider reparations to Black people, because that would mean admitting that Slavery is the foundation to the building of the U.S. empire, which would make the whole mythology of the United States would crumble. And so I think that we have to be very, very careful that we don't allow the coalition to override the particularity of anti-Blackness. Yes, but in terms of a world of struggle and the allies that Black folks here in the United States should be cultivating and supporting in solidarity, what about Africans? What about the debt that is owed Africa? What about the debt that is owed to indigenous people all over the world? Shouldn't Black folks have solidarity that with those who also have grievances against Europe and the white settler states. Yeah, no doubt. Black people should definitely have solidarity with other oppressed groups who are seeking reparations. But I guess I'm just saying that just making sure that we don't get lost in the coalition and that we don't that we don't give up on our original aims as the coalition begins to move, um, I guess is my only thing. But we should definitely remain in solidarity with other groups. Now, this conversation, I believe, is pointing up once again the necessity for national conferences among Black Americans on reparations and on solidarity in general. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's definitely a necessity of some type of central organizing or central meeting of some type, but I'm struggling to see where that would emerge from at the moment. But I definitely agree that there should be some type of conversation that's had really about about and amongst black people for me i don't support reparations as a final end because i don't think that reparations will solve uh, many of the problems because the u.s relies on and is fueled by anti-blackness of course if we're thinking about receiving a check of some sort sure that'll make me feel better in that moment which again is very unlikely to even happen but reparations continues to come up in these conversations that I'm having in a very liberal individualist way where what is just a cash settlement and it isn't really concerned with the future of black people as a whole nationally or globally, which is consistent with what the United States wants, which is to not have us look upwards at what is the common denominator, you know, that's led us to this position. And so I'm thinking about the ways that, you know, reparations 
really is just a type of, of anger manager of some way, the way that it intrudes on our conversations that we're able to, to have because we view reparations as this cash settlement, instead of thinking about what reparations can really do to transform the very position that we're in in the United States. So I agree that reparations should happen fundamentally, but the conversations that I'm hearing, because they take on the liberal tinge, tend to just limit the, the radical potential of Black conversations. So in conversation, I typically say that I don't support reparations as the final end, but I do think that they could be an effective jumping point to think about you know, the next step past reparations, which is to really challenge the United States and challenge its existence even. So you seem to be saying that talk about reparations often distracts or detracts from discussions of transformation. Right. And I'm also thinking about right now the way that reparations, there's the rise of the American descendants of slavery movement and the way that this is like fracturing black, even black solidarities where American descendants of slaves are now saying, well, People in the Caribbean don't deserve reparations because they weren't in the U.S. People in Africa don't deserve reparations because they weren't in the U.S. As if, again, like we said before, it's not the same hand that's dealing death to all of us. And so I think that reparations, just because it's reparations as a concept is just so overdetermined by liberalism right now that it just distracts us, like you said. And who is to say that people in the Caribbean and in Africa and in Asia also don't deserve reparations from the United States, which has for the past 50, 60 years been the main imperial power that maintains those Europe and USA superior relationships with everybody else? Yeah. And so it really just makes it feel like we're engaged in these petty battles with one another when that's not what's going to liberate any of us. We're really just lining up trying to receive charity from the white hand that's strangling us instead of uniting in any meaningful way. I'm also thinking about in the conversation of reparations, who's left out of the conversation? And so when I'm thinking about this, I'm also thinking about voting and who's left out of voting. So I'm thinking about those who are currently incarcerated, including political prisoners like Maroon Schultz, who's currently incarcerated in Pennsylvania, and the way that we, even as Black people, forget those in prison who fought for Black liberation, and then the way that reparations, again, distracts us from, I guess for me, when we're thinking about reparations, I'm also just thinking about who's left out of the conversation. And for me, I think that when we're thinking about any type of Black liberatory project, we have to center the prison. And that's really been affecting my line of thinking, thinking with people like Joy James, who, you know, is taking on this very radical form of abolition that can trace a lineage from George Jackson and the Soledad brothers. And so when we're thinking about any type of black liberation, we have to center the prison, political prisoners, abolition, a radical form of abolition, a revolutionary form of abolition. And reparations, again, moves us away from that. Because even with the right to vote, prisoners aren't allowed the right to vote. So when we're thinking about voter suppression, we don't even talk about prisoners. Like they're just invisibilized from the conversation. And so in the same way, I think that reparations does the very same thing where it invisibilizes prisoners and imprisoned people and political prisoners when these are actually the people who are central to the fight against an anti-Black world and against an anti-Black United States. That was Zuri Armin Kent Smith at the University of Pittsburgh. The grassroots youth organization called Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle have been deeply involved in black empowerment activities in Baltimore, Maryland. 
Lawrence Grand Prix is the organization's research director. He was a recent guest on Dr. Jared Ball's acclaimed podcast, I Mix What I Like. Grand Prix agrees in principle with the demand for defunding of police, but he doesn't think the Black Lives Matter organization has a clue how to sell the concept to the Black community. We've been engaging on conversations around alternatives to policing really for probably about the past five or six years. And because of that, when the current call to defund police popped up, uh, frankly, a lot of us were very frustrated because so much of the nuance that is happening at the grassroots level is completely absent from the national conversation, especially the national Twitter conversation. And it actually made me think of this quote from Kwame Ture, which I literally just transcribed yesterday because I listened to his talk and I thought this is perfect because I think it describes what's happening here, both on the side of the Obama defund the police is a snappy phrase that turns people off and the Twitter BLM defund the police if you don't like it, you're racist type of thinking. Kwame Torre said, the capitalist system lets you think you can think about something without being involved in that which you are thinking about. In fact, they let you think that you are thinking. Unless you're involved with that which you are thinking about, you can't think about it. If I ask the question, do you want our people to advance, every hand must go up. But then you ask, how many of you are involved in the struggle to, do, to advance the people's causes? Hands will go down. But those who are not involved in the people's struggles, they still think they are thinking about the people's struggle. Don't fool yourself into thinking that capitalism is letting you think you're thinking about your people. The capitalist system makes people stupid, then makes them arrogant in their stupidity. Not only do they not know, but they do not want to know. And quite frankly, I feel like this quote can apply to both sides of what has become this extremely weird for someone like me who's been doing this on the ground, national debate over defunding the police. So let's just take the Obama side for a second. First of all, Obama has no qualifications to speak on political strategy around defunding the police. He's, a, he's gotten elected federally, which is great. The federal government has no role in police budgets, almost none. It is almost entirely a state and local issue. He was never a local lawmaker. He was never a mayor. He was a state senator. Again, he never controlled a police budget a day in his life. But let's understand what's happening here. Obama was a community organizer, quote unquote, in Chicago for a few years. But his experience of community organizing is really from what is really a large community organizing entity and something that is probably more affiliated with the black church more mainstream, essentially a power broker between the capitalist real estate entities and the community. He thinks he's fighting gentrification by demanding uh, basically a small community payout and goes to things like after school programming. And he advances things like, for example, moderate criminal justice reform. An example of this would be this thing called the Justice Reinvestment Act, which was sold to community activists as we're going to defund the prison system by de-incarcerating the prison system and reinvesting communities. But people like him and the Center for American Progress pushed that, but it actually did, it did not de-incarcerate at all. And to the extent that they reinvested money, they just reinvested it in their friends who were just in a different part of the prison system because they didn't know any grassroots people to give money to. And when you actually push radical police reform or radical prison reform, radical criminal justice reform, they say, we can't do that because we just did Justice Reinvestment Act. So his experience of politics is this centrist compromise, and he never needs to have a radical sloganeering, radical politics to advance any of that. 
So he thinks he's thinking about politics when he says, I know politics, that's not how this works. When he's never ever been in the position to push a demand like defund the police. Um, so briefly on the flip side, because I fear Kwame Torres analysis applies to not everyone in the so-called movement for black lives, because I guess we're kind of part of that too. But the dominant mainstream conversation on this so-called defund the police argument is basically 90% critique of police, 10% hate as an alternative. Don't accuse me of not having an alternative. Mm. But if you actually want working class black and brown people to trust you, you not only need to flip that and really talk 70, 80% about what your alternative actually is, working class people need to see you on the ground every day for years, building and build, pushing that alternative. The problem is doing that work at a local level is kind of seen as like small ball politics. It doesn't get you viral on Twitter. It doesn't get you a book deal. It doesn't get you tenure. It doesn't get you the sort of accoutrements of celebrity activism that many of these people want. So we're having them target the defund police conversation to a federal lawmaker like Obama or a federal conversation when the entire issue of policing, we all know, is funded through localities. So working class black and brown people see that. They see that you're not in the community when they're pushing for things like minority contracting to get grassroots people jobs. They even don't see some of these people, which stuns me, in the conversations around cannabis legalization. You would think that people like BLM would be all over cannabis legalization. So it's not only an economic opportunity, it's an opportunity to put tax revenue from legal cannabis back in the community for reparations for war on drugs. But the people fighting these issues don't see a lot of these Black Lives Matter activists at their state houses to fight these bills. It's gotten so bad that California's cannabis legalization bill actually put more money into police through the cannabis revenues. And again, the defund the police crowd was nowhere to be found when that bill was passing, even though Wait, BLM already existed. You Lauren, know? forgive this interruption, but please break that part down real quick. How did... Say that part again. I might... I... Yeah. Yeah. How, so, did, so how did BLM, legalizing marijuana yeah. end up increasing funding to the police? Because you know when when you do recreation, when you do medical cannabis, you don't. Most states don't put an extra tax on it because they say we shouldn't tax medicine, which I kind of agree with. When you do recreational cannabis, they say we're going to tax the heck out of it because we want that money, that tax revenue. Mm. But who gets the tax revenue? The police have gone to every single state that's legalized cannabis and said, "Hey, you got to give us our cut because we need to deal with people who are driving high." because of this new recreational cannabis. And the same people who are so gung-ho in 2014, 2015, around protest Black Lives Matter, they were focused on the federal election. They were focused on uh, these big, uh, high-profile deaths in the community, but they weren't focused on the actual mechanics of state lawmaking. So in almost every state that's legalized cannabis, the cops have gotten their cut. And in some cases, in localities in California, police budgets have increased 15 to 25% because they are flush with cannabis tax revenue. Wow. And it's one of those things, but if you're serious about local politics and serious about defund the police and serious about building with people on the ground, you should have been all over that. But and I gotta be honest, this is why it didn't happen. And it pains me to say this. One of the reasons why many people consider M4BL, BLM people weren't there is because big foundations do not fund activists to do cannabis legalization work because it's still federally illegal and they will risk they fear risk losing that federal tax exemption by paying people to advocate legalizing cannabis so this is why we at lbs are so absolutely adamant 
about why we need independent organizing, because if you allow a foundation to determine which flavor of defund the police, which flavor of engaging this argument that you engage, you're going to miss absolutely critical conversations that you can't engage in because of the limits of nonprofit status. So when working class black and brown people hear defund the police, they actually disagree with the statement, not because they believe that police are great, because they don't trust the people advancing the argument to actually be there and committed to enforce the alternative. So if you want to shift that polling number, which is like defund the police only has like a 25% popularity amongst black people themselves. If you want that number to increase, you should not have more woke Twitter threads. You should not do this sort of big abstract sort of emotional sloganeering that we see on national media. You have to go into community and actually engage people on these questions of who are the violence interrupters? How do we pay for the violence interrupters? Who controls that institution? Who trains them? We have a couple hundred now. We're going to need a couple thousand if we want to actually replace the police. Who's going to do that? Hopkins School of Public Health, University of Maryland School of Social Work? And if the answer is no to them, who are you going to present as a grassroots alternative? These are questions you don't have to answer if you want to go viral on Twitter. But you do have to answer if you want grandma in Baltimore City to believe in defund the police. And right now, that's not where the conversation is. What is LBS doing that you would like more support from the rest of us circumvent yep. the more prominent groups getting mm -hmm. all the funding and attention for doing the work that mm -hmm. isn't actually being done? What I want to do before <laughs> then is talk about the conversation that I think people are afraid to have because they think it's not strategic or they don't know how to have it, which is the conversation about actual crime in our communities. Because okay. I don't think people have been serious about how serious a problem violent crime is in our community. There are lots of great answers to defend, defund the police from this question of won't crime increase, but the answers that have been dominant in the national media discourse have been absolutely terrible. They are stock, simplistic answers that work fine if you're convincing white liberals to be guilty and believe your argument, but they don't convince regular working class black people because they have legitimate concerns, they need more. So the answer people give is first, police, most of the time aren't doing enforcing anti-violent crime. They're doing traffic stops, they're doing you know stop and frisk, they're doing property issues. They don't actually deal with violent crime most of the time and violent crime has been declining in most of the country. That's it. That's the best answer that a lot of these people who are being held up as the paradigm of this analysis can give you on what about violent crime. The problem with that is if crime is decreasing, people will tell you they think it's because police have a deterrent effect on violent crime. So even if violent crime is low, they say, yeah, because the cops are there, they deter crime, so we need more cops. So that argument just isn't deep enough to deal with people's real concerns and their assumption around the theory of deterrence. The theory of deterrence is wrong, but you have to actually read like criminological data and criminological analysis to explain why the theory of deterrence is wrong. So in big cities like Baltimore, People think the cops are stupid. They are not afraid of the cops. They believe they can do whatever they want and they won't actually get caught by the cops. If they do get caught by the cops, they believe, first of all, no one's gonna testify against them. And second of all, and this is important, cops are so dirty that when the cases go to trial, a lot of times the cops that do the police work can't testify in the cases because they have dirt on their records so that if they get called to trial, the defense attorney will rip them a new butthole because they'll claim that these people are dirty, they've committed crimes as cops, their analysis is inadmissible. So the first thing you have to do to convince people that you have a strategy to deal with crime is actually police accountability.
Because it's not until the police are accountable to the community do they actually have the ability to do the one thing that you might actually need to do is deal with this very small segment of people who the community themselves deems as a problem. But they don't have any trust that the cops will deal with them until the cops are succumb to the power of the community to community oversight. That's the only way you're ever going to get information to make a good case. And honestly, you also need witness protection. If you do have someone testify, like I've heard people say, man, what that what he did was dirty. He shouldn't have killed that kid. I almost want to go to the cops, but I don't trust them and I'm not safe if I do that. So you need witness protection to also deal with that. Obviously, we all know that the majority of issues of violent crime are not super predators, are not drug related. They are incidences in community that spiral out of control because of misunderstanding, fear, and a lack of information. Think of it like two nations who are at war. I have a nuclear weapon, in this case a gun. They have a nuclear weapon, in their case a gun. I don't want to nuke that nation. I don't want to kill that brother or sister, but I'm not sure that they don't want to kill me. So the vast majority of incidences of violent crime are oftentimes these misunderstandings that spiral out of control for a lack of information and people being afraid that I don't want to push it too far, but I can't trust that they don't want the smoke. So you need people who are credible people who can actually ferry information back and forth between these two entities to diffuse that information and prevent it from escalating to violence. And that's what violence interrupters do. So the violence interruption movement plays a critical role in actually dealing with the actual root cause of violence in terms of the misunderstandings that trigger people, no pun intended, into a violent crime. So that's how you actually deal with crime, violent crime in the short term. Obviously, long term, you have to do the massive investments in job programs. You have to do the massive investments in Black people dealing with the cultural legacies of slavery that make us turn our internalized self-hatred on each other. And only funding Black people in our community can do that. But lawmakers hear that and believe that. But then they'll say, look, I need something that can work short term. I only got two or four years elected. And all that Black cultural revolutionary stuff actually might like it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they do. But I can't prove that's going to work in four years to get the crime rate down. So whether you believe in that incentive structure or not, you have to show people that you actually have a plan to engage in building up the systems that can deal with violent crime. And fortunately, there's great chronological evidence that says this stuff works. Safe streets have been proven to deter violent crime and almost everywhere it's been applied. Now, what you got to do is you got to liberate violence interruption from the white academic industrial complex and put it in the hands of the community as a separate talk. But these are the conversations we need to have. How do you go from 100 violent interrupters to 10,000? Who is getting paid to do that training? Because honestly, it should be people like Baba Adamola in Baltimore, African-centered people who know African-centered visions of human development. Right now, it's not. And to the extent that violence interruption has failed, it's basically because they haven't funded it enough and they haven't made it culturally competent enough. So these are the debates we have to actually have to prove to regular people, oh, wait, so you're actually telling me I don't need cops to prevent violence? It's like, yeah, you don't. But why aren't the people who are supposed to be making the defund the police argument saying anything that I just told you? And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. 
It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.